Hi, I'm Sarah Grace McCandless, and this is On Brand, where we take a closer look at this growing desire for true connection between people and the companies that they engage with. You know, when I think about customer experience, there are a lot of elements to consider. When you think about trying to make something that is truly best in class and stands out, And it's something that has been really growing in terms of importance and focus for companies, particularly over the last three to five years. Now, last year was really a different year. And today, my guest is here to talk about sort of the impact, the current state of CX, what now and what next. But my guest is such an expert in this field. I knew that we had so much to talk about that there was no way I could fit it into just one episode. So this is part one of a two-part conversation with Dan Gingis, customer experience speaker and coach. Dan, welcome to On Brand. Sarah Grace, I am so pumped to talk to you. We go back a long ways and we always have so much fun when we're together. So I know this is gonna be a great conversation. I, I know too. And I, you know what, I'll take virtual since we can't be in person at a conference or an event. Now, listen, when I think again, sort of like the Justice League of America, when it comes to customer experience efforts, you are leading, you are the Captain America of that group. Okay. So why don't you tell our listeners and our viewers a little bit about your back- background and what got you into customer experience in the first place? Well, thank you so much for the compliment. I, I'll take it. I appreciate that. It's a pretty good character to be. Uh, So I spent more than 20 years in corporate America, mostly as a marketer. I got my start in direct mail, believe it or not, direct response, uh, and uh, moved along into digital marketing, pretty much every channel other than television. I have uh, overseen a marketing team around, and I spent a, a lot of my career at big companies, Discover, Humana, McDonald's. It was really at Discover where I was there almost 10 years uh, that I became, I think, a more of a generalist because that's what Discover tries to do for their employees. They, they not only allow movement, but they encourage it. So I had five different roles in 10 years at Discover, and that's about average. And my last role, which I was in for about three years, was the head of digital customer experience and social media. And that was a pretty interesting role for me because when I started that role, I had never been involved in digital, never been involved in customer experience, and never been involved in social media. So when I was recruited to that role by the chief digital officer, we were having lunch, and I will never forget this. I said to him, look, I'm super excited for this role and to come join you, but you got to tell me, why did you reach out to me? Like, I don't even understand. And he said something that, to be honest, changed the whole trajectory of my career. He said, Dan, I've watched you in meetings, and you always have the customer's hat on. You always approach business problems from a customer perspective. And I believe he was a, a good visionary. He said, I believe we have to do that in digital. And this was, you know, 2012, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he said, look, I, where I see this going is that digital customer experience is going to become such a key factor. So I want someone like you. You can learn the digital. You can u- learn the social media. So I got into that role. If you look at my Twitter uh, profile at D Gingas, the day I joined Twitter is the day I started that role because I figured, well, if I'm going to run a social media team, I got to figure out this Twitter thing. Uh, <laughs> and I absolutely fell in love. And I, I realized the power of customer experience and even small changes in customer experience. And uh, over the three years that I had that role, not only did we make tons of improvements to the website and the mobile app, 
but we also eliminated hundreds of pain points. And when we did that, I was part of the team um, that won the JD Power Award for customer satisfaction for Discover for the very first time. All seven years of its existence at the time, Amex had won it. And of course, Amex is an amazing company. And Discover is a smaller competitor, the Midwest, mm-hmm. you know, kind of little guy. And so for Discover to win that, uh, and at the time for the digital aspect to be almost 40% of the score, that was one of my uh, career achievements I'll never forget. And it also kind of solidified my love for CX. And so you fast forward, I tried out some other companies, wasn't all that happy with them and uh, ended up working for myself uh, starting in January of 2019 as a speaker and coach. I've never been happier. I've realized that I underestimated the value of loving my job all these years. And as I've told you uh, the joke, but now I'll tell your audience, I love working for the Dan better than I liked working for the man. So here I am, and uh, now I get to talk about customer experience all day long and uh, and hopefully share my passion with others. Well, I this there's a lot, I love this, and there's a lot there in terms of timeline that's really sticking out to me. So you mentioned it was what, 2012, when this role started with Discover, which by the way, I just uh, activated my new Discover card last night and had a very well, nice onboarding experience with that. Um, so definitely still keeping the customer at the, at the heart there too. So 2012, I, I like you came from marketing. I came from traditional marketing that evolved into digital marketing and then evolved into social. So I think it's one of the reasons uh, I was, I just gravitated right towards you when I first met you several years ago at a conference was I knew you understood that side of the business, which I think makes us understand how does customer service fit into the customer experience. Now, when you were at Discover and they brought this new role to you, um, I've been with my organization for about five and a half years and they brought me over kind of for similar reasons around 2015 because I understood social and the marketing side and, and we saw this growth in the customer care side. When you started with Discover, I don't even know that we were using the term customer experience. Would you agree with that? I mean, that's not, we weren't throwing the term CX around left and right back then, right? Yeah, not as much. I mean, that was my title though, interestingly. So again, I I think the chief digital officer, uh, one of the things I loved about him is he really was a visionary. And he, Mm -hmm. it was very interesting working for a guy that could see five, eight, 10 years out. I wouldn't necessarily say that's my skill, um, but it was really cool. And he was a big thinker. And, um, and, you know, one of the things that he challenged me to do immediately, and this was a little scary, is he told me on, I think, my second day or something like that. He said, you know, I, we have to come up with a personal development plan for you. And uh, I want yours to be really simple. I want you to become a recognized expert in digital and social media. And I said, what is a recognized expert? What does that even mean? And uh, he said, it means that I want you out there representing Discover. I want you talking on stages. I want you writing about it. And that sort of created the monster that that I ultimately became. I started blogging. I started podcasting. I started, um, I remember begging my way onto my first panel uh, and then loving being on stage and and over time, you know, becoming a keynoter and and still loving that. I'm still happiest when I'm on stage being able to uh, share great stories with audiences and inspire them to go back and focus on customer experience. Uh, And so, I do think he was definitely ahead of his time. I, by the way, I keep talking in past tense. He's not dead or anything. He's just not my boss anymore. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I do think he was very much um, 
ahead of his time. And uh, but you're right, CX has become much more in the forefront. I think for sure you referenced it in the intro. Uh, nothing like a good pandemic to get people to focus in a different direction. And no question, one of the positives of last year was an intense focus on both customer experience and employee experience. Because mm -hmm. I think companies finally woke up and realized if we don't have customers, we don't have a business. And so we have to focus on our customers. And the mistake that so many companies have been making is they pour all this money into marketing and sales and they mm -hmm. forget about the customers that are actually keeping the lights on. And I know you want to talk more about that, but that is, uh, I think that started to shift last year. Yeah, I think so too. I think it was um, sort of approaching and coming and growing. I mean, you know, you and I were attending a lot of the same conferences where 2020 was positioned as the year several years ago where yeah. customer experience was going to ring king or queen above price and product. We were saying that it was coming out, you know, there's a different report every week. And within that, obviously social, I love that, that, you know, you're like, what, what are you talking about? And you know that the day you started your Twitter was with this day that you started this role. But again, really ahead of the game there, because as we know, uh, every stage of the customer journey takes place in social. And it's it's kind of a rare um, uh, situation to have that. And on that note, I do want to point out now you are a keynote speaker um, and a coach, but you are also an author of not one, but two books, your second book coming out this summer. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I do want to share with our listeners that your first book is in fact, and for those watching, I'm holding it up right now, like Vanna White, uh, winning at social customer care, how top brands create engaging experiences in social media. Um, I remember when I got this book from you um, and you were, again, head of your game because it wasn't like a lot of this was out there in the marketplace that was specifically focused on social. So let's go just prior to 2020. Can you talk to me a little bit about why social was already so important in terms of a point of connection between brand and consumer? Well, I told you that I have uh, overseen marketing teams in almost every marketing channel. And when I got to social, the thing that immediately stuck out to me was that this was the first marketing channel where people could talk back. And I thought that was fascinating. Right? We don't talk back to a billboard. We can't talk back to Super Bowl ads, or if we do, nobody can hear us. <laughs> in social media, we can talk back. Consumers can talk back. And I immediately thought, wow, this is different. This is different from any marketing channel that I have been in. And you know, we quickly saw companies making some early mistakes like, hey, let's take our TV commercials and put them on Facebook. Eh, well, people don't want to watch your TV commercials when they're on TV, so they definitely don't want to watch them when they're on Facebook. I really focused on this idea of being able to engage with customers because I was fascinated by what they were saying. And, you know, for anybody out there that has never done this, if you haven't ever sat in a contact center and sat with an agent and just listened to customer calls, it, it will change your life. It'll change your whole perspective because hearing the literal voice of the customer, not a VOC report where you're reading it on paper, but hearing their voice, hearing the tone, the emotion about what's going on. You know, the credit card industry doesn't sound very emotional, but it is. It has to do with people's financial well-being. It has to do with, you know, people can't pay their bill or whatever. And it is a very emotional connection. And when you hear that, you know, your heart breaks for people and you want to do better. You want to improve. And 
So when I got into social, I was like, this is amazing. We're hearing all this stuff about Discover, the positive, which is great. Let's do more of that. Hey, people like when we do this, let's do more of that. And we're hearing some complaints, some negatives. Okay, now at least I know what to fix. We're hearing some questions and questions are great because number one, generally we have the answers to them so we can resolve it, but also it starts to teach you well, if one person has this question, I'll bet a lot of customers have this question. I wonder why they have the question. Maybe we could answer this question on our website or somewhere else so that we can save them the trouble of having to ask. And I just felt so empowered that social media was this channel where now I had so much more information and, and not just, yes, it's great for data, it's amazing for data, but I had qualitative information too because I was having one-on-one -on -one engagements with customers and really trying to understand their relationship with the brand, as you said. And so I published the book because at the time, there were a lot of people talking about social media, but almost no one was talking about customer service in social media. It was all about how social was a great marketing channel. And to this day, I still think social is an okay marketing channel. It's not my favorite marketing channel. I don't like being marketed to in social. Uh, and that's often the screen that I use when I try to determine what I'm gonna do for my customers is if I don't like it, I don't wanna do it to somebody else. Uh, but I do think it is a, tr a terrific channel for service. And it's one that has continued to grow in popularity, especially as a direct message and chat has become more popular. I will tell you, as a customer experience guy, when I have a question or a complaint or something that I want to talk to a brand, the first thing I do is I go to Twitter DM. I go yeah. to the direct message. I take it off of, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody publicly. And what I find is I get the best, fastest service through that channel because they're happy that I didn't go public with a, with a complaint, um, but also it's got all of these advantages of chat. It's got all of my history. I can go to, uh, to Hyatt on, um, on Twitter and you know I gave them my loyalty number 17 chats ago and they still have it. So they don't have to ask for it again, which is amazing. It just makes the whole experience a whole lot easier. Yeah, I'm, I am in lockstep with you. And I've often wondered, okay, is this because I work in the industry that my default is DM or messenger? And yes, but also, and yes, and, uh, I, it is the best uh, sort of seamless asynchronous experience because I can really drive. If the brand is there waiting to answer my questions, I might ask, they answer, I might come back in two minutes or two hours, but it's really up to me. And I'm just like you, I usually go to DM first or messenger first, unless I think that what I have to say might give them a little brand love on a public setting, because I do see that consumers, you know, we're seeing more and more talking about the please and thank yous. And I had a good experience, not just um, something's wrong or tandem with I called and I'm complaining on social. I think we've seen that shift. Social isn't a last place of resort. It's often a first and it is, um, it could be in tandem, but it's often a first. I love what you said too about the importance, you know, you really, if you've never listened into a call and I have, it was one of the first things I ever did um, when I joined my organization and you do hear that. And I think it gives you some insights too. And how can you translate brand voice and tone and things like empathy in a written format like social? So all of this stuff is happening. It was already in the works, right? And now we go into 2020 um, and everything started to change. Um, 
some brands showed up and they didn't know what to do. Some things, some brands did things right. What were what were some of your first sort of impressions and reactions when it came to like just how big this um, pandemic was going to have in terms of a global impact? Well, let's be honest. I don't think any company knew what to do. I don't think any business continuity plan covered what 2020 was going to be. Uh, there were some companies that were more prepared than others. I do believe that whatever happens next in our world, whatever crisis happens, I do think companies will be far more prepared than they were this time. But what I thought was really interesting was very early on, you could see which companies got it and which companies didn't. The first thing, if you'll all remember, that we got was about a zillion emails in our inbox from pretty much every company that's ever had our email address. It reminded me a lot of when the privacy rules changed in Europe a couple of years ago, and we got all these privacy changes. Here, we got all these emails about cleaning procedures and links to the CDC in the United States or equivalent uh, authority in other countries. And to me, they were all tone deaf. They just were not really paying attention to what was going on. And the first email that I got that was really different was from Charles Schwab. And I've been a customer of Charles Schwab since 1996. And it was a personal letter from their CEO. And it basically started with something like, we understand how concerning it must be to be investing in a volatile market. We know that you must be nervous. So here are some tools that we have to deal with investing in a volatile market. It didn't say anything about them, their cleaning procedures. It didn't send me to the CDC. It gave me a valuable tool exactly at the moment I needed it. And it showed empathy because it because I felt like they understood me. You bet I was worried. That market the first couple of weeks was going crazy. And people didn't know whether to buy, sell, take all their money out. They People were definitely nervous. And, you know, I compare that to a different brand that I think also did something really, really cool, which was Starbucks. So Starbucks, this was a little later on, Starbucks realized that one thing that was significantly missing because people were staying at home was the in-store experience. And as, as people who have studied Starbucks know, um, Howard Schultz's whole idea was creating this third place. You got home, you got work, and then the third place is the coffee shop. And, and it's a very European concept that he wanted to bring to the United States. Well, all of a sudden, the third place is gone because either Starbucks are closed or we can only go through the drive-thru. So what they did is they sent out an email to their rewards members that offered people the chance to download free virtual backgrounds for Zoom and other, and other uh, services that looked like you were sitting in a Starbucks. And some of them even uh, had were actually video backgrounds. So you know they have that uh, nitro brew that where you can see the like the the bubbles in the in the uh, drink. And and there's one background where like the nitro brew is sitting right in front of you, and you can see the bubbles. It's awesome, and it got people back into that third space without actually being there. Now, why do I tell both of these stories? Because if Schwab offered me virtual backgrounds, it wouldn't have made any sense. And if Starbucks had offered me financial advice, it wouldn't make <laughs> any sense. But what was awesome about both of these examples is not only were they different from the sort of check the box emails that we were getting from everybody else, but they were right on brand. Mm -hmm. And they, they reflected the brand so positively. And it made me feel better about being a customer of both brands. 
Those are great examples too. And you're, you're spot on. I think it's be true. I mean, that's, you know, as we think about what now and what next, one thing that I'm hearing and I, I concur with you is be true to the brand. And there was a lot of sort of reactionary versus response. I know I spent a lot of my time with clients doing crisis management right out of the gate, which certainly I'd done before, but usually for a finite situation, a hurricane in this region, not something where it's like literally going to change how we operate moving forward. It's not just a temporary fix. So it was just a whole different level of maybe it's a little crisis management and then just um, being considerate as a brand too, and how you show up now really can kind of make or break your business. This was very specific to Charles Schwab, Starbucks. Um, love that example. I was fortunate enough to work with that brand in a previous role, and they're still so near and dear to my heart. There's a lot, I think, to be learned from the way in which they kind of pivoted and handled that experience and still maintained a point of connection. And that's really what you heard in both of your stories. Um, you know, there was a lot of rushing to the table and kind of bandwagoning and different aspects throughout 2020. Um, so we saw how you do it right, true to brand. You gave two great examples and we saw a lot of how not to do it right. What else do you think um, is a key learning coming out of this past year? Maybe something that will carry forward with, with us well beyond um, the pandemic. Well, like I said, I think there was a much more acute focus on both customer experience and employee experience. And they're very much related. They're, you know, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Happy customers equals, or excuse me, happy employees equals happy customers. We can't expect employees to provide great service if we don't provide a great environment for them. And I think that companies realized they had to focus on that more. The other thing was that we saw a tremendous amount of innovation in terms of how service is delivered. And, and that innovation undoubtedly is going to stay. And you know, the example I love to give is I'm a, a little bit nerdy in the sense that I really love going grocery shopping. I used to cut coupons. I like I love having my list and, and, and you know pushing the cart and all that. And then COVID comes around and I'm curbside pickuping, right? I'm I'm ordering online and I'm going to curbside pickup. And one of the things that I realized was wow, I just got at least two hours back in my weekend because I didn't have to go grocery shopping. And you get used to that. You kind of like that. And just because a pandemic is over, you may still want that. And so one, I think, easy prediction to make is that curbside pickup is going to continue to be a thing, uh, even when it's uh, when this is over and it's perfectly safe to go in. Uh, I think people are going to like the convenience. There's a lot more convenience aspects that came out of this pandemic. I think, you know, obviously curbside has worked for restaurants and, and others. And I think restaurants will see that even when they get to open up and they get to have in, in room dining again, they're still going to have a big curbside pickup business because people got used to it. They like it. It's fast and convenient. And so these are, you know, speed, convenience, these are all core aspects of customer experience. And I think what was really cool last year was to see companies innovate around that and come up with some ideas that frankly are better than we had pre-pandemic. And so therefore, I really believe that they're going to stay. Uh, you also, because we were talking about social media, I think another trend that we saw was a move to digital in terms of service, even faster than, than we expected or predicted. And that was across all age groups. Now, part of that was because for a while, it was very difficult to talk to anyone on the phone because the call centers, so many companies' call centers were just overwhelmed, hold times were outrageous. 
And so we moved to digital. And as you pointed out, I think social is now a great channel of first resort. But the other trend that's happening is we're seeing a lot more of a push towards self-service. Mm -hmm. And this really started, I think, with the millennials who who just preferred self-service. Hey, let me figure this out themselves. But it's extended to other generations where people realize, again, hey, with a quick Google search or a little bit of a couple of clicks on a website, I can get the answer to my question. I don't have to go through an annoying phone tree menu. I don't have to wait on hold. I don't have to repeat myself to somebody on the phone uh, or you know, type in my account number and then say the account number to the agent and all these annoying things that we, that we know when we talk on the phone. I can just do it myself and be on with my day. And so I think that's another great trend that will absolutely outlast the pandemic is, is allowing customers to self-serve, uh, especially the ones that want to, and that population is growing. I think you're right. And that innovation piece is really key. And even in the story that you told, you know, it's a great example of what might have been perceived as different departments or sectors needing to work together. I just placed my online order last night for my Fred Meyer pickup, Kroger, uh, Kroger and my, my Midwest, where I'm from, where you are right now. <clears throat> and um, but see, it starts there, right? It started with the dot com. And then it, it then I get text message updates about my order. And then I have the in-person experience of them needing me to load the groceries in my car. I had just started doing that as well, just prior to the pandemic. At the time, it was like a $5 charge, which they've been waiving. And I was like you, it was like almost meditative for me to go grocery shopping before that. And then I, I got that time back and I thought, well, I can probably find other ways to meditate than, you know, in, you know, the bread aisle or whatever. Uh but I think you're right. And it really speaks to that need to, and then the collaboration between not just the .com, but the content on that .com from a self-service perspective. I know, you know, our organization, uh, we were able to, we didn't have a lot of those call times because we had such a built-in work at home model already and such a large self-service department um, in terms of content development. So again, a little ahead of the game, but I think um, you saw some industries that were able to pivot and some that did not. I think of uh, the online experience from like the fitness industry, for example. Some were there already, some were not. Um, so innovation, um, being true to who you are as a brand. I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, you and I have so much to talk about. I knew I couldn't fit this into one episode. So to close out this first part of our conversation, um, thinking ahead, now we're in a new year. We're not past it yet. But what is something you would recommend to uh, a brand to keep in mind in addition to that innovation and staying true to who you are in terms of your, your values and your voice and tone? Well, great question. I, I always recommend first and foremost that you spend as much time focusing on your existing customers as you do trying to acquire new ones. And I have this concept that I explain in my new book, which I know will be part two, uh, but it's called the leaky bucket. And what this means is almost every company has a leaky bucket. These are people that are walking out the back door while you're focused on the front door. And sometimes they walk out the back door and they tell you why they're leaving. And that can be very valuable because you know what to fix. Most of the time, they just go radio silent or as our younger friends say, they ghost you <laughs> and, uh, and they move to your competition. And you never know why you lost them. But I'll tell you why you lost them. It's because you didn't focus on them at all. You just took them for granted and you let them continue paying and you didn't provide the service or the experience that you promised. And people see that, right? Customers see 
when the cable company offers a better deal to new customers than to existing customers. And it annoys them, mm-hmm. right? It's a bad idea because it leaves your current customer saying, well, man, if I want to get a really good deal, I should go to this company's competitor and I'll get their promo deal, right? It doesn't, it's the wrong incentive. And what I have found and what I advise companies is when you focus on your existing customers with as much enthusiasm and vigor as you do the sales and marketing teams, you actually don't have to sell and market as much. And that's really what part two of our conversation is going to be about. Absolutely. And and I also want to talk about your new book that's coming out this summer. And that book, the focus, again, ahead of its game is really talking and focused on kind of what is the anatomy of a great brand experience. And I know that you've got some examples you want to share and I do too. So thank you for this first part of our conversation, Dan. And I am so looking forward to part two. So am I. Let's do it. <laughs>